it's always important to vary your pattern. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Season 3, Episode 29 of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast, where we talk about writing, spies, and writing about spies. I'm your host, spy novelist P.A. Duncan. Last week, I talked about the latter half of the Moscow Rule Vary your pattern and stay within your profile or cover. This week I thought I'd talk about the front half of that rule. Vary your pattern. Varying your pattern, whether it's how you get to work, where you exercise, your route to the grocery store, is a common personal security practice. Women, in particular, have always heard the stories of stalkers, or experience them, as I'll explain in a little bit, and, yes, serial killers, who select a victim and then watch them for the patterns to determine the best time and place to strike. In the 1990s, as threats to government employees grew, including threats to our families, Many of us received some personal security training from the Diplomatic Protective Service. The biggest emphasis was on varying your pattern. Don't always park in the same area at a metro station. That's DC's subway. Vary which metro station you use. If you leave the building for lunch, consider varying that pattern by staying in and eating in the in-house cafeteria a couple of days a week. If you do eat out, return to the building by a different route from the one you took to go to the restaurant. Don't always go to the same restaurant. When we would have to work for even a brief period of time outside the U.S., we got a country-specific version of Vary Your Pattern. Now, a great deal of that was related to not becoming a victim of crime, more so than for espionage concerns. However, I had long before learned some of the things diplomatic security specialists were teaching us. In my late 20s, I extricated myself from a bad, bad relationship. My ex was a cop the kind of cop I abhor now, the kind of cop who enjoyed using his nightstick without provocation on perps. He would have preferred to use his gun, but in his words, that was too much paperwork. He stalked me after the breakup, showing up at my work, which unfortunately was easy for him to explain because he was a D.C. cop and I worked in D.C., He loitered outside my apartment, harassed my neighbors, followed me as I did errands. I lamented this with a co-worker who had flown for a CIA airline 
in the Vietnam era. And this was the first time I learned a construct of vary your pattern. These lessons stuck with me for my fiction and for my personal life still. I live in a small city that is a tiny drop of blue surrounded by a sea of red. And the bumper stickers on my car quite easily explain my political leanings. So I've had to practice some of the Moscow rules, living where I live. If I decide to make a Starbucks run, I go there by one route and I return home by another. Same with going to the grocery store. If I go this way, I come home the other way. If I use one of the parking garages downtown, I trade between them and always park in a different area. It borders on paranoia, yes, but I think it's important. I also have two cars, one for the summer, essentially, and one for winter, because we do get snow here. And I vary which one I use at random. Of course, one of them does have a very distinctive vanity plate, which rather defeats the purpose, but I don't want to be too paranoid. So why should an intelligence officer vary his or her pattern? Well, let's say you've identified someone you want to recruit, an asset you think will have good information for you. You plan your approach. You observe that asset yourself. But if you end up going to the same place at the same time, day after day, and focusing on the same person, someone, like the security services for that country, is going to notice. And especially so if your presence around a particular person or in a particular area doesn't conform to your profile or cover story. Now, one of the best practitioners of vary your pattern was the Soviet Russian agent Robert Hansen, the FBI agent in the Russia branch, who sold secrets to the Russians for almost three decades before he was finally caught in early 2001. Hansen's advantage was working in the Russia branch, he understood the KGB. He understood them very well. He knew how to spot them. And he also knew how to approach them. He knew the things they looked for in people they suspected of being an enemy spy. So when he offered himself to the Soviets, then the Soviets, as an asset, he pretty much ran the show. He pretty much ran himself. He never agreed to a face-to-face -face meet, and he set the schedules and locations of where he'd drop his data and pick up his money, and they were always different. He kept meticulous records of the locations he used to assure he didn't repeat them in a discernible pattern. Initially, the Soviets wanted to see who this potential asset was, mainly to make sure he wasn't 
a dangle, someone sent by the FBI to make them, the KGB, expose who their spies were. When he refused a meet, they decided to stake out one of the places where he was to pick up a payment. But again, because he knew how the KGB operated, he spotted them and he bypassed picking up that payment. He left the money alone to assure his anonymity. And after that, the Russians were like, well, okay, we we won't try to do that again. I mean, he sent them a letter of admonishment, you know, trying to look at me or find me is not how this works. And if you do it again, I'm not going to give you any information. So they were hands off. But varying his pattern is what made him so successful for so many years. Now, don't get me wrong. Robert Hansen is a traitor and who is rightfully living out what's left of his life in a federal prison. But he played the game really well and survived it for a long time by varying his pattern, not only for the Russians, but for the FBI as well. The story I wrote for Spy Flash 3, The Moscow Rules for Vary Your Pattern, was again a piece that was more backstory for three of my characters, Alexei Bucher and Mai Fisher and Edwin Terrell. But it also introduced a character I later wrote more about in my series, Self-Inflicted Wounds, and that's Cassandra Brown. When I did the vignettes for the backstory and created the character of Cassandra Brown, I really had no intention of using her in anything else, but she stuck with me, as some characters are wont to do, and so she became the antagonist in Self-Inflicted Wounds, but we'll delve deeper into her another time. The story, Vary Your Pattern, in Spy Flash 3, The Moscow Rules, is a little further back in time than the other stories in the book, which are more or less contemporary. They take place within the last five or so years. Vary Your Pattern takes place in the early 1990s and shows how even the best of covert operatives can forget the Moscow rules when you get complacent. But it also shows, again, how important varying your pattern can be even for us non-spies. Commercial time. The prequel reader magnet, Prologue to Terror, which is linked to the novel Terror that just came out last month, book one of the new series Meeting the Enemy, is still only 99 cents for the ebook. Prologue to Terror gives you some context for the novel Terror, and it's a really tight, short read. I think you'll enjoy it. Another 99-cent ebook for this month is Spy Flash 3, The Moscow Rules. This month is the short story collection's first book birthday. So 99 cents for a novel-length collection of short stories. Not too shabby. And available for pre-order is my new novelette, Old Love Does Not Rust, 
which comes out on August 29th. This year, 2022, is the 40th anniversary of my father's death. And this story, Old Love Does Not Rust, is about a son finding the father he never knew. This is my acknowledgement of missing my own dad and having lived more than half my life without him. I'll put the links for all three of these deals in the description for this episode and commercial over. Now I think it's time to read a bit from Vary Your Pattern. Again, the story takes place in 1991. Mai and Alexei have had custody of Natalia, Alexei's granddaughter, for two years. And they've just moved into a sprawling house Mai calls the Monstrosity, located in the D.C. suburbs. In this case, it's the fictional town of Mount Vernon, Virginia, along the Potomac River. Edwin Terrell, late of the CIA and now selling his services to the highest bidder, finds himself in a spot of trouble with his old employer, the CIA. He knows there's only one person around who'll agree to help him out of it. Spy Flash 3, The Moscow Rules, Chapter 7 Vary Your Pattern. Mount Vernon, Virginia, March 1991. Edwin Terrell Jr. muttered under his breath, Edwin, your love of money will kill you yet. He checked his rear view and side mirrors and saw he'd lost the teams chasing him, if any of them had survived. He'd tricked them both into thinking he was holed up in a hotel on Route 1 near Fort Belvoir. It was an area of Fairfax County where a shooting in a hotel room was fairly common. He imagined what my Fisher might say to him. What on earth did you do to get not one but two kill squads off to you? What indeed? The Iraqi hit squad, that was easy. Terrell had taken a lot of Saddam Hussein's money to help him plan the invasion of Kuwait. He'd dutifully passed Saddam's intent on to the CIA, but he had no idea people in the administration would decide it was a perfect opportunity for a brief war with minimal U.S. casualties, one that would prove the president wasn't an Ivy League wimp. Saddam, however, had somehow figured out who'd sold him out and the people now in charge at the CIA had never liked Terrell that much. As a case officer, he'd gotten the job done, every fucking job they'd ever given him. His methodology, however, had unnerved them, but his capture by the North Koreans had ended his career. The torture he'd endured there made him suspect since there was no way to prove he hadn't spilled his guts. They cut off my fucking arm, and I didn't say squat, Terrell had told the review board, to no avail. Cut loose before he was eligible for a full pension, all he'd gotten was a medical retirement. 
That left only a single option. Be a consultant to whoever offered him the most money. But contracting with a dictator the U.S. blew hot and cold on was beyond the pale for the CIA. So two hit squads. And if any of the Rockies had killed any of the CIA at that hotel room, the CIA would be even more pissed at him. He couldn't go back to his condo, and he doubted he could get out of the country right now. He'd learned the Moscow rules a long time ago, and he knew the only way to survive was to vary his pattern, big time. He ditched his own car days ago and rented a succession of them under various aliases, and bless Enterprise for having an office around every corner in Northern Virginia. However, he needed a decent meal, a bath, and a good night's sleep somewhere safe. There was only one place that fit that bill, only one person who'd grant him safe harbor without question. Well, that is, if her husband would let her. Right on time, Alexei Bukharin's Jaguar made a right turn onto Route 1. The entrance to the enclave where he lived was hidden by a decent copse of trees, and Terrell had waited in a McDonald's at a table where he could see the spot where the private road intersected with the state road. In the car with Bukharin was a redhead, an 11-year-old one who was Bukharin's granddaughter. Bukharin had school duty this morning, and Terrell knew once he got on Route 1, he'd vary the route to Mount Vernon Middle School and would practice evasive on the way. Terrell wondered how he explained that to the kid. Now that had been a big surprise. The man who'd left his infant son behind in Russia to defect had taken in his grandchild, when a car accident killed her mother and left her father an emotional cripple. No big deal if Bukharin had a stay-at-home wife, but my Fisher was Bukharin's partner in espionage. Terrell could only imagine how she was taking to her new role as mommy. Well, let's see, he thought. She'd built a huge house on a pricey piece of property on the Potomac River and it included a home office that operated as a satellite for the United Nations Intelligence Directorate, whose secret location Terrell could have sold for an even tidier sum than what Saddam had paid him, but Terrell had some principles remaining. As soon as the Jaguar was out of sight, Terrell abandoned his coffee and went to his rental car. He, personally, would have put a gate across the driveway, but that might be in the future. Right now, he supposed their cover story of a financial planning expert and his wealthy wife protected them. The driveway snaked through a dense outcropping of trees, and when he rounded the final curve to a circular drive in front of the house, he smiled. Leave it to my fisher, to plop a Georgian monstrosity in northern Virginia. The enormous brick house was definitely stately and had a three-car garage off to one side connected to the house by a breezeway. 
He parked on an apron next to the garage, got out, and lit a cigarette. He strolled to the rear of the house and took in the view. A long, wide, featureless lawn stretched down to a wooden pier that extended a good ten yards into the Potomac River at one of its widest points. Across the river were the Maryland Bluffs. Next to the wooden pier was a brick building tucked back against the trees so it wouldn't obscure the view from the house. A workshop? A boathouse? Behind him, a gun cocked. A firm British accent said, Hands where I can see them. He didn't raise his only arm, occupied as he was with smoking. It's me, baby, he replied. She came around the corner of the garage in a combat crouch, Beretta gauntleted in both hands, her face set in mission mode. Damn, she was so sexy like that. Hey, baby, what's up? He said, drawing deep on the cigarette he knew she'd demand he put out. She lowered the gun and straightened. Why are you skulking about my house? Well, I was going to come to that impressive front door and ring the bell, but I wanted to check out the view. He grinned at her. There's a butler inside, right? No, though I'd kill right now for a nanny. Lose the cigarette, please, but do not drop it on the ground. Jesus, homeowners, he thought. But he went to the car and put out the cigarette in the ashtray. Am I invited in? he asked her. Of course. Front door or family entrance. Uncle Snake will be pleased to use the back door, Madam Lady of the Manor. She gave him a raised eyebrow, and he followed her around the house. The back of it had a massive deck stretching its width. The deck had various forms of seating, from Adirondack chairs to rattan sofas and matching chairs, the back of the house facing the river had tall windows, a lot of tall windows, more on the second level. Well, why hide a good view? He suspected the windows consisted of a material not only bulletproof, but eavesdropping proof and shielded the interior from prying eyes. The family entrance led through the garage, where he saw a new Toyota forerunner and two empty spaces. One of them, he assumed, was for Alexei's Jaguar. As you can see, Alexei isn't here right now, she said. He's taken Natalia to school. Oh, I know. She stopped and turned to him. How? Well, I've watched the comings and goings for a couple of days. He takes the kid to school, goes to the Bellhaven Marina to ogle boats, and comes home. He needs a brush-up on the Moscow rules. Why would he need to vary his pattern when we're... So safe here in suburbia, she said. Bellhaven Marina, Alexandria, Virginia, two weeks later. Alexei Bukharin hadn't always been a tolerant man, but he was evolving. He'd lived for two weeks in a house with his wife, his granddaughter, and his wife's former lover, He'd listened to his granddaughter call Terrell Uncle Snake and watched his wife evince a comfort around Terrell she rarely showed with him. However, she'd been particularly generous with sex during that time, 
so Alexei wasn't complaining. Much. He'd even reached the point where he felt comfortable leaving them alone together in the house. He was also a man whose house was on a navigable river, and he wanted a boat to take advantage of that. He'd already imagined moonlight cruises with wine and my and scant clothing. After weeks of searching, an ad for a boat fitting his needs had shown up in the weekend newspaper, and he'd contacted the owner. They'd agreed to a meet at Bellhaven Marina, Alexei with checkbook in hand to pay a boat inspector to look it over and or to buy it outright if said checkup was good. By 10 a.m., he was a boat owner, and excited enough about it, he almost called Mai. Instead, he negotiated renting a berth at the marina until he could have a boat lift installed at his boathouse. That done, he relished the good weather and changed into his running clothes at the marina's bathroom to run a few miles, indulging himself as he did in watching the women on the trail as they jogged. He was married, but not dead. Again, he imagined those romantic cruises on the river, only him and Mai, provided Edwin Terrell ever left. On the way back to the marina, Alexei headed off-path to a spot he knew, an elevated section of riverbank at a slight curve in the Potomac. Though he had an unmatched view from his own house, he liked this spot, where the trees softened the roar of airplanes from Washington National. A mother duck and her ducklings paddled back and forth, nibbling at flora. The spot was reminiscent of a place on the collective where he'd grown up, a place to go and think and reflect. And here the two men creeping up on him in the brush. He gave no indication he'd heard them, but he unzipped the jacket of his jogging suit to have access to his gun. They closed on him, but he leaned against a tree with nonchalance, willing them to show their hand first. That came from the one on the right. Alexei cleared his gun, and the sight of it stopped the man. Alexei shifted his back to the river to counter a rush from the left. Once more, the gun stopped the second assailant. "'There's no need for this to become messy,' Alexei said. "'What do you want?' "'Tell us where Edwin Terrell is,' said the man on the right. "'I have no idea where he is. "'But if I did, I'd have to know first who wants to know.' "'The man on the left said, "'I'm reaching inside my jacket for my ID.' "'Alexei nodded, and the man produced his CIA identification. "'Fine and good,' Alexei said. "'But I can't help you. Move along.' The directorate is his only option left. Tell us where he is. What's the directorate? Just tell us for fuck's sake. I don't know where he is. Move along. A soft cough sounded behind him, and something sharp stung the left side of his throat, below his ear. Warmth seemed to spread from the spot, and he supposed it could have been an insect until his vision tunneled. He plucked a feathered dart from his neck and studied it. Whatever had been in the tiny ampule was gone now, 
only a trace of amber liquid left behind. A third man in the river behind him. He tried to say, you motherfucker, but it was garbled. A woman laughed. Alexei managed to raise his gun, pointing it at the closest man, but his finger wouldn't clinch the trigger. He tried to keep his knees from buckling, but gave up when everything went black. All right, that's more than enough for today. That story in its entirety comes pretty close to novelette length, so reading the whole thing to find out what happens is completely up to you. But remember, the ebook is only 99 cents, and psst, here's a secret. It'll be free for five days, starting on July 25th. Enjoy the upcoming weekend. I hope it's sunny, but not too hot where you live, though these days finding someplace that's not too hot is getting harder and harder. If you're out and about enjoying the summer, don't forget to vary your pattern while you keep an eye out for spies. The proceeding has been a production of Unexpected Paths Media, copyright 2022, all rights reserved. Join us next week for a brand new episode of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast. And always remember, stand with Ukraine.